Hello, and welcome to Christmas Book Review, Episode 5, with me, Carrie Mercer. So this time, I read three novels. One called Black Friday was a thriller, and I gave that one a 2 out of 10, which, even though I really liked, I couldn't give it a higher score, and I'll explain that in a few minutes. The next one was You'll Be Dead spelled Y-U-L-E. I love those puns in the titles. Those are fun. That was a mystery, and I gave that a 7 out of 10. And the third one was called Lark, the Herald Angels Sing. And that was a mystery as well. I gave that a 9 out of 10. I really liked that. I will definitely be reading more from that author. Okay, so let's get into the details of each book. First was Black Friday by Alex Cava, and this was a thriller. It was published in 2009 by Mira Books. It's part of a series called the Maggie O'Dell series, and she's the main character. I haven't read this series before at all, so I'd never heard of it. I really just picked this book on the basis of the title because Black Friday is kind of the biggest shopping day of the year. Um, If you've ever worked in retail, you'll know how that works. And so I thought, oh, maybe it's, you know, about Christmas kind of because shopping for Christmas presents. So um, that's why I picked it. And it ended up really not being about Christmas hardly at all aside from that particular day is when things happen. So that's kind of why I'm giving it a 2 out of 10 but I want to tell you about it anyway because it was a really fun book. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, It was a really good thriller and I'll probably uh, read some more in this series just because I like thrillers. So it is about the shopping day Black Friday at the Mall of America, which is about two miles from where I live. So obviously that appealed to me. But it's about a bombing at the Mall of America, which is really scary. Um, so I'll tell you about the characters that are involved. There's a lot of characters there are, first, there's the three kids. I call them kids. They're college age. Rebecca, Dixon, and Patrick. And they are in their 20s. They're college age friends who have traveled from Connecticut, where they go to school, to Minnesota. They drive together and they're going to stay in Minneapolis for the holiday weekend at Dixon's grandparents' house. And Dixon and Rebecca have been friends since childhood, so they're really close. And then there's Patrick, who is somebody that Rebecca met at her job working in a restaurant. And so they're they're kind of friends. Um, and so they invite him, Dixon and Rebecca invite him to come with on the trip, and he accepts to their surprise. And he goes with them because he doesn't have any family back in Connecticut. So he figures he'll do something else for the weekend and go with these friends. 
He obviously has feelings for Rebecca, but she is fiercely independent. And they both seem to have something traumatic in their pasts that is keeping them from kind of connecting and becoming closer. Now, Dixon is the one who is carrying a padlocked backpack in the mall. And he supposedly, this is some kind of computer mechanism that's going to mess with the store's computer systems as some kind of protest against corporations using overseas labor and goods instead of American labor and goods. It sounds kind of lame, but whatever. That's the story device. And Chad and Tyler are some other characters who are friends of Dixon's from high school, and they seem to be the ones who have gotten him involved in this little caper of carrying around these backpacks that are going to mess up the store's computer systems. So it's their little protest. And we find out right away that this protest is actually a ruse. And these kids have been taken in uh, by somebody who has actually put bombs in the backpacks. Somebody called the project manager, I'm using air quotes, Robert Asante, is going to detonate the bombs remotely from outside the mall as he sits in a parked car. And he somehow has gotten GPS on each kid's phone, and so he can tell where they are. And after he sets off the bombs, all three of them, he sees that one carrier or one kid's phone is still moving after the detonation. And so he decides to go inside the mall and finish him off. And let's tell you about some other characters. Okay, so there's Maggie O'Dell, who is the main character of this series. She is an FBI profiler. And then we've got Gwen, who is her friend and co-worker and a psychologist. There's Julia, Harvey, and Benjamin Platt, who is a army colonel and doctor, and also the love interest. And there's Tully. And they are all in Virginia at the beginning of the novel, because they're celebrating the Thanksgiving weekend, and they're all at Maggie's house. They're all kind of co-workers, and they get interrupted when a call comes for Maggie from her new boss, Ray Coons, who is a jerk because you find out that he blames Maggie and one of her co-workers, Tully, for another co-worker's death, which I'm guessing happened in the novel previous to this one. So we find out who the person is who died in the last book. He was the assistant director, Kyle Cunningham. So it sucks that he died because they all really liked working with him, um, but they were exposed to the Ebola virus. And Maggie was exposed along with Kyle, and Kyle did not make it, whereas Maggie recovered. I kind of wondered, you know, is this Christmassy? Is it kind of like 
Maggie is Scrooge and she's given a second chance at life because she recovered from this Ebola exposure. But I don't know. I think that was kind of a reach. And let's see, there's Nick Morelli, who is another character. He is in Omaha, Nebraska at the beginning. And there's his sister, Christine, and they're talking about getting a Christmas tree for their mother um, and father, who is an invalid. And Nick has some history with Maggie, and he still wants a relationship with her. But she has been consistently uninterested and yet he doesn't seem to be taking the hint. Anyway, now he is working for the security company that handles security at the Mall of America. So they are going to cross paths again because of this bombing. Other players, there is Alan Foster, who is a senator from Minnesota. Uh, there's the ADD of Homeland Security, Charlie Wirth. And Maggie notices on the plane that it's, quote, ironic and refreshing to meet someone who didn't pre-measure his actions to limit his accountability, unquote. In other words, his priority is not covering his own butt, and she likes that about Charlie Worth. He's a good guy. So, uh, Maggie's new boss, Coons, has called her, and she is thinking about him and what he's like. She notes that his superiors, quote, called him straightforward and quick thinking, whereas Maggie considers him to be reactive and impulsive. His colleagues described him as determined, focused, and passionate, but Maggie sees him as unpredictable, short-tempered, and vindictive. And I really liked this very succinct characterization. I love this sort of parallel translation of her, the way she sees him as opposed to the way his other colleagues see him. So the novel is pretty fast paced. It alternates between points of view, which makes it feel like it's moving faster. And it's told in third person, sort of limited third person. Um, but it still alternates who we see the action through and what they're thinking and feeling. So when they arrive at the mall, there's kind of this funny moment where Maggie thinks, let the pissing contest begin, because all these different people from different agencies are going into this situation, and they're mostly men, it seems like, and they are all trying to be the boss and be in charge and it's just a big ego contest. So uh, you get from Asante, he's the project manager, bad guy, you get from his point of view that this is not just a bombing, it's a larger project and we don't really know what that larger project is. He, he just says he's moving on to the next stage of the project, the big project. I'm going to let you wonder if it's revealed to the reader or not what this big project is. But I did really enjoy the book. I thought it was, it was very well written. It's got engaging three-dimensional characters. 
Um, even though there's a lot of characters, I felt like I could tell them all apart. They were, you know, fleshed out enough that they were um, distinct. And yeah, I really liked it. So unfortunately, I'm giving it a 2 out of 10 on the Christmas scale, Christmas spirit scale. But, you know, if you like thrillers, um, this might be a fun one for you to investigate, even if it's not really about Christmas. Okay, so the second book, You'll Be Dead, is by Lorraine Bartlett with Gail Leeson. And this is a series, it's called the Victoria Square series. It's published by Berkeley Prime Crime, which is a big mystery series publisher. It was published in 2018, so it's very recent. And I'm giving it a 7 out of 10. It was pretty good. The main character is Katie. She is the owner slash manager of Artisan's Alley, which sounds like kind of a craft mall. There's several different um, vendors in the alley. There is a woodworker, a quilter, somebody who does linens, and then there's Godfrey, who is a dryer lint artist, which sounds gross and weird, and it kind of is. Okay, so then there's Andy, who is Katie's boyfriend, and he's also uh, the one who runs the pizzeria right near the uh, Artisan's Alley craft mall. And he is her landlord for the apartment that she lives in that's over the top of the pizzeria. Then there is Margot, who is Katie's former mother-in-law. Chad, what a name, Chad. Chad was her son, and he died almost two years now when the book happens. And Katie and Chad were actually separated for a few months before he died. And I don't think... Margot knows that. He evidently used Katie's saved up money to buy Artisan's Alley, and it sounds like he went behind her back to do it because she had been saving up to buy the bed and breakfast that's nearby, but now these other two guys own it and run it, Don and Nick. And so Margot, Katie's mother-in-law, calls kind of out of the blue and wants to come visit for a few days. And she's actually being much nicer to Katie than she ever was when Katie was her daughter-in-law and she was with Chad. So that kind of freaks Katie out. Then there's Ray, who is a retired homicide detective, and he is a vendor in artisan's alley he runs something called wood you and it's uh woodworking and he has three daughters sophia sasha and sadie and one of them might have an eating disorder and katie is trying to help ray kind of figure out if she does and what to do to help her i guess their mother died not too long ago and so sometimes ray will kind of come to Katie with a girl problem and get some advice on how to help his daughters. So they're pretty close, um, this little family and Katie. She really likes the girls and, and helps Ray out when she can. Then there is Francine Barnett, who is 
the owner of the afternoon tea shop, which is not doing well. And Francine wants to sell it. And she wants to sell it to Katie because she thinks Katie can turn it around and do a good job with it. Kind of like she did with Artisan's Alley. Because when Chad bought Artisan's Alley, it wasn't doing well at all. They weren't making a profit and um, it was really disorganized. And Katie kind of came in and saved it, basically. And now it's doing really well. So Francine has a daughter, Vaughn who is actually the murder victim. Yes, we finally get to the murder in the murder mystery. She was a young woman. She was not a child. She it sounds like she was like in her 20s. And Francine, her mother, seems strangely cold about this death of her daughter. Um, this is what Katie notices, and she's wondering why. So... It comes out that Vaughn had been trying to basically find a man to financially support her, and she was rather aggressive in her search for said man. The relationship with between Vaughn and her mother Francine seemed really good until about the time that Booth, Francine's husband and Vaughn's father, died. And instead of getting closer, they seem to grow farther apart. And you do find out why later in the book. So Katie is not sure if she really loves Andy. She knows she's jealous of his beautiful blonde assistant manager, Erica. And she actually goes so far as to find another job opportunity for Erica and tell her about it, much to Andy's chagrin. He's not too happy about Katie getting rid of his efficient assistant manager. So I found the book a bit slow moving and really repetitive. It seems like much of the story is taken up by mundane day-to-day -day activities that don't really do anything to advance the plot. Um, and then it's like nothing's happening, nothing's happening, and then all of a sudden something big happens. Katie gets hurt about halfway through the book when the one of the prime murder suspects tries to kill her. So the pacing is really uneven. Now the relationship between Katie and Margot seems really important. Margot wants to help Katie, but she often ends up annoying Katie just because she's always so charming and so well put together that Katie feels inferior to her. Uh, but then other times, Margot is really helpful. Like she, at one point, she helps resolve a conflict between two of the vendors in Artisan's Alley by suggesting that they work together instead of competing with each other. And that uh, works really well. There's another part that is a really weird little episode of Margot lecturing Andy and Katie like they're teenagers about needing to spend more time on their relationship. She says they obviously care for each other and they shouldn't work so much and they really should spend more time on their relationship. And it's very awkward. Um, I don't really know what the point of that was. So you wonder, of course, who the murderer is, 
And there's one really super obvious suspect, which of course it's not going to be him because that wouldn't really be a mystery. Um, Carl Fisk is his name and he is the bartender nephew of the quilt vendor at Artisan's Alley. It seems really straightforward and obvious that it is him, but then you wonder why. Why would it be him amongst all of her boyfriends? Why him? He doesn't have a really developed backstory, and you don't know... Oh, you do find out that pretty early on that not only was Vaughn murdered, but she was pregnant when she was murdered. So there's the question as to who is the father of that baby who died. Vaughn's backstory is pretty well developed. You find out a lot about her, but you don't find out much about Carl Fisk or her other boyfriends. You do find out that Ray, that's the former homicide detective and father to three girls, he is older than Katie, but you don't really know exactly how much. But Ray evidently is really interested in Katie um, romantically, but she's involved with Andy and she really doesn't think of Ray that way, although his daughters do. And there's a really awkward moment when one of them voices this in front of Katie and Ray and they don't know what to say. It's kind of awkward. Um, so another awkward moment. This author likes awkward. There's another moment when Ray kisses Katie and it's really kind of ew, especially in this Me Too climate that we're living through right now. It doesn't come off as okay that he kisses her. It's like he sort of takes advantage of a moment and does that. So I won't tell you what happens or who the murderer turned out to be. You can find that out on your own if you decide to read this book. But I will say that the ending was satisfying in as far as the relationship with Margot. They really deepen their relationship, um, Margot and Katie. Um, it also turns out that the bad guy, it's really satisfying who the bad guy is. Uh, but there are a couple of holes in the plot left. Like, you don't know for sure who threatened Katie because she was, you know, injured that one time um, when somebody tried to kill her. And then there's another moment where some masked guy comes into her office and threatens her. And you don't know for sure if that who that was. So that's kind of annoying that you don't find that out. Also, a really big thing is that she does not figure out uh, her relationship with Andy, her boyfriend. She had seriously been wondering throughout the book if she really loved him. It seems like she's ready to either take him or leave him. And you don't find out if she's ready to commit to that relationship or not. I don't think she's going to go for Ray, but... You know, she doesn't have to be in a relationship with the man. So, overall, I found this kind of meh. I probably won't read this author again. A lot of problems. So, overall, yeah, I give it a 7 out of 10. So, let's get to the third book that I read this time. It's called Lark the Herald Angels Sing. 
sort of a play on the uh, Christmas Carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It is by Donna Andrews, who is a cozy mystery writer. This particular series is called the Meg Langslow series, because she's the main character. It is book 24 in this series, so I think this series has been very successful. And this one I actually listened to on Audible. The narration was done by Bernadette Dunn, who is really good with doing different voices. She does them just different enough to tell the characters apart, but she's not doing like ridiculously deep voices for male characters. She just does really nice um, sort of nuanced differences in voices. And I don't know how she does it, but the elderly people in the story, like Meg's grandmother and her grandfather, they totally sound like elderly people. And it's not because of the words they're saying. It's just like something about the inflection that the narrator does that's really good. So I liked that a lot. Okay, so Meg, the main character, is the play director of a children's live nativity that they are rehearsing when the book opens. And they're rehearsing this pageant when they find a mystery baby in the manger. There is supposed to be a baby in the manger in this nativity, but this is not the expected baby that's supposed to be there. They find out this baby's name is Lark from a note that is left, has been left with her, uh, hence the title of the book, Lark, the Herald Angels Sing. And the note that's left with the baby also implies that Meg's brother, Rob, is the father. Now, Rob is in a relationship with Delaney, his girlfriend, and he has been about to ask her to marry him. So, um, this really throws a wrench into the works. Uh, when Delaney finds out about this note, she freaks out and won't speak to Rob. And Rob freaks out because he knows he's been with Delaney for a couple of years now, and he knows this isn't his baby. Delaney, unfortunately, is quick to assume the worst about Rob. About Rob. <laughs> but you do find out that Two of his ex-girlfriends have showed up recently, and so Delaney might uh, have been more sensitive than usual just because of that. So the story takes place in small, a small town called Carfilly, and it's so small that when Meg calls 911 about the baby, the operator asks her what she needs and calls her by name um, because she... She knows Meg, and she knows the number, I guess, that's calling. So the sheriff arrives, and they s suggest that they get a DNA swab, but admits it won't be done for weeks because they're in such a small town. They have to send out lab work like that to get it done. Luckily, Meg's grandfather, who is Dr. Blake, has a lab in town where he can do a DNA test because he is a zoologist and he has a foundation where he works with animals. And so he has this lab where he can do a DNA test. So Meg suggests that grandfather can do the test for the baby and it won't take nearly as long to get the results. So that's good. So they're 
is talk about this baby and how they're going to identify it. I shouldn't say it, her. Um, They're going to identify who this baby is. And they're talking about how most Caucasian babies have blue eyes that may or may not change later, up to a year after they're born, they say in the book. But I had to think of my husband because he was blonde and blue-eyed until he was nine years old, and then he changed, and he has dark brown hair and sort of brown-green eyes. I guess that's hazel. So, um, I don't know. Maybe he's a freak of nature, but (laughs) he changed way after just a year. Now, um, the grandfather character in this story, of course, has lots of animal knowledge, Um, because he's a zoologist. And he talks a lot about ornithology, which is um, birds. And it's interesting because he is sort of looking at the baby in terms of a bird, um, a particular kind of bird called a non-obligate brood parasite. I know it's a mouthful. This is a bird who lays eggs in the nests of other birds of the same species, but also makes their own nests and has some eggs there. So they kind of spread their eggs around to make sure that their genes will survive. And I don't know, he's, <laughs> you learn something about birds in, I think, all of Donna Andrews' series, or this, this particular series, because all of the titles have some pun about birds in them. Another one is How the Finch Stole Christmas, instead of The Grinch. And I'm definitely going to read that. I cannot resist that title. So anyway, they're talking about birds and they actually end up using a behavior of these particular birds to help them try and find the parent who left this baby. So that's kind of funny. Um, There's another character, Meredith Flugelman, who is the child protective services um, for this county. And She's kind of weird and annoying. Um, When she arrives, she's just so perky and Meg can't stand it. I'm not fond of perky people either, so I could relate. But it's funny that Meredith is a CPS officer because she obviously is not good with children. Um, She only sees Lark as basically a logistical problem. Who can she um, get to take care of her until they figure out more about her? And so Meg and her husband, Michael, end up being the only available foster parents at this time. Um, It's very near Christmas. It's like a few days before Christmas when the story happens. And Meg didn't even know that she and Michael had been approved to be foster parents. So that's a surprise. But she's happy to take care of Lark for now. Let's see. There's another character, Robin, who is the pastor of the church where the rehearsal is taking place. And she has a baby of her own, Noah, who is the baby that was supposed to be in the manger when they were rehearsing. Um, And she plays a big part in this story. She's also the director of the women's shelter in town. Okay, so speaking of the women's shelter, we get another character 
Meg's father because he is a doctor and he's like the only man that's allowed in the women's shelter because he's a doctor and also because he dresses up as Santa um, and comes and visits the women's shelter and gives out presents to the kids there. So that kind of gives you an idea of his character. He's a really good guy. And I just thought it was funny that this is the second book I've read for this episode that has people in it who are dressing up in Dickensian costumes for tourists during the Christmas season. Uh, Evidently, they do this to attract tourists to Carfilly, and it's very popular. So one of the fun details that I liked in this story was about the library that Meg has in her home. Uh, because she describes the room as originally being a ballroom. I guess this is a really old house. I was totally interested in this and wanted to know more about it. She talks about how this library used to be a ballroom until they put two-story bookshelves in it, um, which they had built in exchange for keeping the library's books when the library had to be closed. And I'm sure that's a story in another book of this series, and I'd love to read that since I'm such a library junkie. So it turns out that the baby's mother is Mrs. Caverly. That's her name. Um, Her first name is Janet. And she is married to this man who is actually being hunted by the authorities in the neighboring Clay County. Um, because supposedly they're saying that he murdered someone. Um, he didn't, but they're blaming him anyway. What's actually happening is that he was working as an accountant for some people. I think they're called the Dingles, which is a great name for a villain. Um, These are the bad guys in Clay County. They're in all these positions of authority, like the sheriff, the judge, other people like that. And so Mark, Mrs. Caverly's husband, was working for them. And then he found out that they were doing all these illegal things. But he was like in too deep at that point to leave. And I guess he tried to leave. And now they're hunting him down because they don't want it to get out all the illegal things that they're doing. So this is why Mrs. Caverly left the baby, because she is trying to hide from the Dingles and, of course, wants to keep the baby safe. And so they agree to help her, and they're going to put her in the women's shelter with the baby for now, And they keep having to hide her and the baby while they're figuring out how to get Mark to safety. Um, Because at some point the Dingles catch Mark and they have him in jail. And so Meg's family and the sheriff in Carfilly, they're all trying to figure out how to save Mark. Well, some of the men go on this little jaunt where they think they're going to go and free him from jail And nope, they get caught. The Dingles put them in jail. And then another group of men go to try and free those guys. And they all end up in jail, like Christmas Eve. So the women are left to figure out a solution. 
and they do. They aren't armed, and their plan is to, quote, shine the light, unquote, on Clay County, this corrupt neighboring county. They are going to show that all these people are in custody, and there's no reason that they should be. And I won't explain how it works, but suffice it to say, it does involve the Christmas spirit, which I thought was wonderful. And so I gave even more points to that being the solution. So yeah, I'm giving this a 9 out of 10. It had really fun characters, good pacing, fun details. There was nothing left hanging in the plot. It was all explained and resolved by the end. And I recommend this one highly. It's a lot of fun. And like I said, I'm I'm definitely going to read How the Finch Stole Christmas next. Okay, so that is about it for this episode. Um, I hope you are enjoying my podcast. And if you are or you have any comments you'd like to tell me, I would encourage you to leave a review on iTunes, of course. That's the best way to help other people find the podcast. Of course, you can also tell your friends. That would be great, too. And if you want to suggest a book to me that I should review, my email is christmasbookreview at gmail.com. So that's easy to remember. And I will, as always, have links in the show notes to the three books that I reviewed. And until next time, happy reading.